wants to hear the word of God. All right, good. Actually, another question, real quick. Who in here likes to read? Just raise your hand. Who in here hates reading? <laughs> I knew Josh Jameson would raise his hand. Um, I like to read. Um, don't read as quite as often as I should, and I think that's probably true for most of us, but um, I like to read. And I wanted to share with you all before we begin an article in the Wall Street Journal this week. You were, you might, some of you all might be going, well, what's this going to be? I don't normally read the Wall Street Journal. Um, I don't have any money. And uh, this is what the title of the article is called. The Way We Read Now. A new survey of America's favorite novels shows that storytelling moves us far more than literary quality. In the article, they poll 7,000 Americans. 7,000 Americans who read. And they came up with a list of the top 100 fictional books ever written in American history. Uh, PBS is doing a, a, I think a special on it. And they call it the Great American Read List. And what they found in this list, what they found surveying these 7,000 people, is not at all what they'd expected. And here's what he says. Among the American novelists missing from the list are Nobel Prize winners like Sinclair Lewis, William Faulkner, Saul Bellow, legendary names like Flannery O'Connor and Edith Wharton, living greats such as Joy Carol Oates and Jonathan Franzen, whose 2001 novel, The Corrections, sold around 3 million copies. If Americans don't love the books that are usually supposed to constitute American literature, then what do we love? One answer the Great American Read List provides is that we love the books we read as children or teenagers. We are most likely to cut our teeth on children's fantasy titles, which make a strong showing on the list, including Harry Potter, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lord of the Rings, and of course, Alice in Wonderland. Alongside these early favorites are the accessible literary works that you might find in a middle school syllabus, To Kill a Mockingbird, A Separate Piece, Grapes of Wrath, Moby Dick, and The Heart of Darkness. But other categories stand out that have nothing to do with school. The Great American Read List is heavy on genre writing. Science fiction like Jurassic Park and Ready Player One made the list. Thrillers like Da Vinci Code and Gone Girl made the list. He goes on. This is not simply a matter of readers preferring genre writing to literary writing. Rather, it appears that in any genre, readers prefer strictly functional prose to stylistic elegance or idiosyncrasy. Another way of putting it is that when Americans read, we mostly read for story and not for style. We want to know what happens next and not to be slowed down by writing that calls attention to itself. Perhaps, for many readers, it does not make much difference whether a story is told in print, on a page, or images on a screen. The narrative itself is what matters for us. In fact, the Great American Read List confirms that there is a great hunger in our culture for grand mythic narratives. The adoration of the Harry Potter books, like the nearly scriptural status of Star Wars movies, involves more than simply fandom. These are comprehensive universes, complete with their own laws and histories, heroes and villains, morals and meanings. 
Indeed, while there are some books on the top 100 list that could be categorized as strictly escapist entertainment, what's striking is how many of them have a serious didactic purpose. Americans are a moralistic people. That's one reason that we argue so bitterly about politics and our books reflect our love of sermons. <coughs> then there are tales of good fighting evil, whether they take the form of teen fantasies like The Hunger Games and Twilight, which made the list, or explicitly Christian vocabulary like Frank Peretti's The Present Darkness, which I'd never heard of, and the Left Behind series, which made the list, which is set in a post-rapture world. I love this. In a sense, you could say the most influential book on the list is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress from 1678, which helped to pioneer the combination of religious moralizing and fantastic adventure. Here's the last paragraph. Literary taste, like taste in food or music, can be educated. We learn to enjoy things more and to enjoy more things as we accumulate experience in reading. But before taste comes the need for sustenance, and that is what America's favorite books provide, the stories that we need to make sense of our lives. So let me get this straight. According to this article, Americans want books that tell a story. Americans want books with grand mythic narratives. We want heroes and villains. We want good versus evil. We want morals. We want meaning. We want purpose. We want adventure. And lastly, we want to read something that helps us make sense of our lives. Does that sound familiar? Every single American classic ever written was just a cheap copy of this book. The greatest story ever told. The reason we love these classics is because they contain just a little piece of the gospel story. Well. That's right. America is hungry for the gospel. They're just going somewhere else to find it. We have to preach, we have to talk, we have to live as if we know where the greatest story ever told is. Well. This morning in our passage, Jesus identifies Himself as the God of the Old Testament. I am, as Taylor read in Exodus 3. And what He's saying is, every story, every character, every chapter in the Old Testament is just but a subplot in the greatest story ever told, and I'm the main character. This morning we have the guarantee that every single story in this book points us to the greater story, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. See, y'all want to read now, don't you? Verses 48 through 59. You want to stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Holy Spirit says through John. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. 
Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, Jesus Christ is the rock of ages. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He was here before death arrived, and He will be here when it goes. Father, in a perishing and temporary world, let us look to the eternal. Let us look to Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Let us look to a God who first came to Moses and Moses didn't even want the job. You told him the good things you would do in spite of the unbelief, in spite of the sin. And when Jesus came to your people, they said he has a demon. Father, thank you for the great mercy that you've shown us in Jesus Christ, the I Am. Open our eyes this morning so that we may see who Jesus is and what he means when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Amen. I'm just, I'm just reading this and I'm like, My wife and I celebrate our sixth anniversary, by the way. Well. <laughs> That gets a well too. I'm glad. Right, He's listening. Um, you know, I'm not perfect, obviously, and my wife deserves much better. But I can say that my wife and I have been faithful to one another. <laughs> All right. Now you're really listening. All right. I've been faithful to my wife, is what I'm saying. She's been faithful to me. Our picture. The gospel is pictured in our very imperfect marriage. For six years, we have been projecting a small, very imperfect, very sinful picture of what the gospel is. But it falls short because my wife has never accused me of having a demon. I mean, think about it. The very people he's trying to love, Taylor read it, he tried to get Moses on board. Moses didn't even want to do it. Didn't feel like he was worthy. He comes to his own people now and they say he has a demon. Look at the love of our God. Relentlessly pursuing his bride. Bride don't even want him. This morning I want you to remember this truth. I'm going I'm to start boiling down to this truth. Sinners find victory over death by abiding in a Savior who is not subject to death. Sinners find victory over death by abiding in a Savior who is not subject to death. Last week, Jesus called the Jews children of Satan. This week, the Jews are saying, Jesus got a demon. 
And the reason they think he has a demon is because Jesus claims authority over death itself. Well. Verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's pretty bold. The first question we should ask this morning is, does Jesus mean physical death or spiritual death? Well, see, while that's obvious to us, the Jews think he means physical death. Read verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are? But what we know is that Jesus doesn't mean physical death. He's talking about real spiritual death. Yes, Abraham died bodily. But Jesus is saying that Abraham actually went on to live forever and he was able to do so because he knew Jesus would come. Verses 56-57 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Verse 57 So the Jews said to him, You're not 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? So Jesus is saying, not only can I make sure that you don't die, not only did I make sure that Abraham didn't die, me and Abraham are homeboys. And he looked forward to the day I would come. Then Jesus drops the bombshell. Here we go, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, past tense, just in case you missed it, I am, present tense. It's kind of a tricky sentence, but here's what Jesus is revealing. For me, there is no past tense. For me, there is no shadow of turning. I'm not subject to time or space or change of any kind. Abraham got old and he died. I'm ageless. I'm immutable. When Jesus utters the words, I am, He's identifying Himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. This morning we read from Exodus 3, Taylor did, great job, called Himself, I am that I am. Jesus is saying, I'm the, the God of the burning bush. I'm the God who delivered you into a land of milk and honey. I'm the God who is the Alpha and Omega. I'm the one who was around before death came, and I'll be around a long time after. If you abide in me, you will not taste death. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's no other name or description of God that is more fitting in my mind than I am. And it's because without Him, there is nothing. There's no existence, there's no reality, there's no space, there's no time, there's no people, there's no things. God just is. He is the first and the last. God is the very reason for being. And Jesus says, you know that, that God? That's me. I want everyone in here briefly to try to think in your mind about nothing. Try. Just try to think, try to think in your mind, try to conceive of nothing. Real quick. You can't do it. Whatever you're thinking about is something. Go ahead. Just try. Real quick. Jonathan Edwards said, nothing is what dreaming rocks think about. <laughs> Some of you are imagining an empty space. That's, that's, that's something. Some of you are imagining like a black hole. 
which is, of course, something. Some of you have like a white sheet. That's it. That's something. Our minds can't grasp nothing because all we've ever known is something. God existed when there was nothing. He is the I am. In some sense, in some sense, God is existence. So just think about the irony of Jesus telling them that He's the one who created the universe. And they respond, not by falling in worship, but picking up stones that He created and trying to stone the I am. When I was young, I don't know if this was y'all, but I was the kid that would ask my dad who made God. Did anybody else do that? I don't know. I got really tripped over that when I was little. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm weird. Was it? I just I could not fathom how there was nothing before God. Because everything in my mind, and I'll say, now let's not pick on five-year-old Abby. 32-year-old Abby does that. Everything I've ever known comes from something. Robert Schrader never met his dad. I'm assuming he has a father because Robert Schrader is here. Those plants outside came from other plants. Those animals, we actually had a, had a lad, he wasn't there, but a big old frog on our door that was greeting people as they came in. That frog came from something. There's nothing in my life that I can conceive of that has no beginning, but yet Jesus comes on the scene and says, it's not that I was, I just am. You see, I never could unwrap my mind. I still can't wrap my mind around what came before God. He has no beginning. Isn't that amazing? I mean, let's just stop and say, I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I can't get around that. He just is. You see, it's weird though. Little Abby never got used to that, but little Abby did get used to death. I got used to people getting old and dying. It hurt, but I came to expect that that's just what happens. And God says it should be the exact opposite. It should be completely natural to believe that God has no beginning. It should be completely unnatural to watch things die. When we look up at the stars and we think that a single being clicked his fingers and everything was, trillions of stars simply came into being, that is something completely natural. To go to a funeral and to think that someone was here and now they're not here, that is unnatural. The Jews had gotten used to the fact that Abraham died and the prophets died. What they couldn't wrap their minds around is that Jesus is I Am. Because of their sin, they're blind to His glory. Because of their sin, they become accustomed to death. But they could not bear to hear the very word that sparked the cosmos. When in doubt, read Charles Spurgeon. Here we go. Charles Spurgeon encapsulates the way we should look at death. Here he goes. I think it should be up there, Quinn. Are you here now? He is. This is what he says. Can it be that God originally made me to die? Did He intend that the noble creature who is but a little lower than the angels, who has dominion over the works of God's hands, beneath whose feet He has put all beasts of the field, did He intend that His creature should waste away as a shadow and should be as a dream that continues not? Come, my soul, let this melancholy thought thrust itself upon your attention. You die because you sin. Your death is not God's primal ordinance, but is a penalty brought upon you on account of the transgression of your first parent. You would have been immortal if God had been immaculate. Sin, thou art the mother of death. Adam, you have dug the graves of your children. Wow. 
We might have lived on in everlasting youth if it had not been for that cursed theft of the forbidden fruit. Look then, that thought in the face. Man is a suicide. Sin slays the human race. We die because we have sinned. How this should make us hate sin. How we should detest it. Because the wages of sin is death. Brand then from this day forward the word murderer to the brow of sin. Deep. So let me just summarize what Charles Spurgeon just said. Every funeral you've ever attended was made possible because that person sinned. I, Avi, unless our Lord Jesus Christ returns, will die because I'm a fallen child of Adam. And unless our Lord returns, everyone in here is going to die. We won't escape physical... We won't... We won't escape physical death by the blood of Jesus. But Jesus says that if we abide in His Word, we will escape real death. Because Jesus tasted death, I don't have to taste death. Because Jesus was separated from the Father, I don't have to be separated from the Father. Because Jesus was struck down, I don't have to endure the wrath of God. There is a death that is infinitely worse than physical death, and Jesus tasted it on Calvary. See, Abraham could not have died for our sins on Calvary. He's not eternal. He does not possess the fullness of deity. He cannot pay an infinite death, but the I Am can. I think it's safe to say that no one who is in Christ will ever understand the depths of what Jesus endured on the cross. But in case you need a little reminder, I'm going to remind you with a single verse. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, I think. There's two of the scariest verses in the Bible, just as an aside. The one that scares me the most is, away from me, I never knew you. But this one's pretty dang scary. Here we go. This is what he tells Judas. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Try to think about that for a second. Death, contrary to popular opinion, isn't going to sleep. Death is a place where you wish you didn't exist. That's death. Hell is existing in non-existence. Spiritual death is living apart from life. It is being encased in fire, darkness, flame. But the worst part of spiritual death is being completely cut off from the I Am. If God is the I Am, just try to imagine existence apart from Him. And you have death. Those who are spiritually dead in hell wish for annihilation. Existence clings to them like a disease. They want to be done with it. And yet they are no closer to the beginning than when they first began. That is the horror that you don't have to taste because Jesus gladly tasted it for you if you would but believe in Him. The I am, the I am became nothing for you. 
The God who breathed life endured the worst possible death for sinners. You mean you think the nails are bad? You think the, the crown of thorns was bad? Those are mere scratches compared to the wrath of God. Yeah, I, now I can see why Abraham was rejoicing seeing the day of Christ. He was like, finally my debt gets paid. Can you see now why Christians don't mind dying for their faith? Can you see now why Christians don't fear physical death? Can you see now why there's still hope when you're riddled with disease, when you're riddled with sickness? Christians aren't afraid of death because we're alive in Jesus. Christians don't fear death because we know what real death is. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So to be born again is to have living hope in a dying world. The world we live in today, an unbelieving world, is dead inside, indulging in their carnal urges and their fleshly desires, and they're screaming, it's good to be alive! Meanwhile, believers are bearing with the burdens of the weak. We're loving our enemies. We're suffering for the sake of the gospel. We're pitied by the world, and we don't care because we found life! This morning, if you're born again, the life of the I Am has already broken through into your dead soul and you have the guarantee that death no longer has any hold on you. Christians are alive even when we're dying. We found victory over death by abiding in a Savior who is not subject to death. So this morning, I just wanted you to think about this. If you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus today, if you claim Him as your Savior, if you've trusted in the Gospel to save you, what Jesus wants you to know is this. Before Abraham was, I am. Before death was, I am. Before your family was, I am. Before your marriage was, I am. Before your sickness was, I am. Before your problems and your challenges and your worries, I am. We can trust Jesus with our future because Jesus has no past tense. Kelly and I were in our front yard last week talking about family. And I'm been kind of sad lately because I my grandma and my granddad were just really close to me, and I think I've only recently felt how much I, I miss them. And Granddad being gone, um, you know, Grandma was like our glue. I don't know if any of y'all have experienced that, where someone leaves and you realize they were part of the center. And my brother's in, Bur you know, we're all in Western Kentucky now. Jake's in Oxford. Well, I'm in Oxford. Jake's in Oxford, Mississippi. I'm in Oxford, Georgia. Grant's in Birmingham. Joe's in Savannah. Josh is in Nashville. We're everywhere. And we can't ever... You know, we're just waiting for Joe to get married because that's the next time we're going to see each other. That's the only time we got for one another. And I just... It just makes me sad because I just drove by Henderson, you know, when I went home last time and it's just like all my memories are there and it's just like an empty field now. And I... But I've got the memories. Um, 
I'm not trying to be too nostalgic on you this morning, but my point is, I've got those memories, but the memories of my family don't mean a thing unless I understand that every family will inevitably, inevitably be past tense. No family will last. And I never, I know I knew that, but now I know it. I honestly thought me and my cousins and my uncles and my aunts and my grandma, I thought we were just going to be around forever. Bye. And we're not. Bye. And now I'm looking at the house where all my, I mean, and I just saw it and, I, and that was my favorite house growing up. I think I told y'all one time, I was in fourth grade, we got to write down wherever we wanted to live. Some, kid, some kids were like Europe, some kids were like, you know, the Rocky Mountains, California. I listened to Henderson, Kentucky. That was my favorite place in the world. And now it's just a, it's just a farm. And it, God has reminded me that our families were never meant to be our strong tower and our rock. Only Jesus can do that. Psalm 27, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Before my grandma and my granddad, Jesus is. Before Kelly was, Jesus is. Before my parents had me, Jesus is. The Todd family will one day be a memory but Jesus will still be I am. Do we live like that? Or do we build our castles thinking that our families are I am? Because there will be a day where your family was. When Abraham looked, I can only imagine, he says that Abraham looked to the day and he was glad. I can just imagine in my mind, in his faith, Abraham going, I don't know his name, but he's already my friend. And then coming into glory going, I knew you were there. Who are you? I'm I am. We, this world is trying to grab so much life before it dies. This world is so uncomfortable with death, we don't even want to talk about death. And here Jesus Christ says, if you're a Christian, you've got to die every single day, and you've got to look to your own death, because only then will you find life. Just think about it. A hundred years from now, your name will not be remembered, you will not be worshipped, you will not be revered. Unless you found some college, you're not going to be even remembered. But Jesus will still be I am. I just wanted to remind you that because before your grandparents ever were, before your parents were, after you die, after your kids pass away, after your grandkids pass away, Jesus is still doing what He's been doing. Your story, your children's story, your grandchildren's story, our stories are just like those American classics that we talked about. They're just like the story of Abraham and the David and Elijah. Your story is only given meaning when it stands in relation to the story of God. We are just a bunch of little short stories in relation to the story, which is Jesus Christ uniting Himself to His bride in an eternal wedding. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've placed your faith in His atoning death, you have the promise that you will never die. And I invite you to believe in the, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and He will give you life.
But you've got to believe not in yourself, not even in your family, but in the I Am. Let's pray. Father, You've given us all so many good stories to tell. But in heaven, they're really only telling one. Because only one really matters. Father, please write Your law on our hearts. Please put Your Spirit in our hearts so that we may never turn from You and we may never forget the good news that Jesus has ransomed us from death. And let that be our battle cry. Father, for anyone in here who has never placed their faith in the great I Am, I pray that they would come to know the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to see His glory. And all these things we ask in Your precious Son's name. Amen.